Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 32. The Uncanny X-Men. God Loves, Man Kills. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will be taking a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and try to determine whether or not it is worthy of its reputation. As always, I am Tom Panneries, and along with me for the ride is the Kitty Pride to my... Nightcrawler. <laughs> Stella. That is an appropriate comparison. I was hoping that I would be compared to Kitty Pride. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, I'm not cool enough to be Wolverine. <laughs> I'm not huge enough to be Cy- uh, Colossus. Sure. Plus know- there would be a romantic undertone to that one. Yeah, and who wants to be Cyclops, really? <laughs> Poor Scott, he gets a bad, uh, bad rap. I, I've never uh, understood it. Yeah. So, but yeah, so we're we're doing the X Men. How are you before we get into this mutant mayhem? Ah, uh, mutant mayhem, indeed. I am well. I mean, not to date this thing, but you know, we're in, we just started. I guess our vacation, and I just went in. I think for the last time into school and just planned soft plan for next year and cleaned up my area so they can take everything out and wax the floors and stuff and now i'll have to get into some heavy academic reading for uh for my italy thing i have two more days i have finals tomorrow and then a half oh wow okay and i actually have exams to give tomorrow so it's going to be a lot of me like getting it and grading it as quickly as possible because i have no desire to grade on friday but we just had graduation, so we're yeah we're we're all set. So 
I, in fact, I packed up my room earlier this week because I had nothing better to do. So I brought all that home. <laughs> um, do you bring all of your little people home too? I do. Um, they move uh, the the cabinet. The, the cabinets I have in my room are all on wheels. So they move them in and out of the room over the summer to wax the floors and stuff. So I just, I bring, I've always brought home anything that's personal of mine because I don't want to risk it being gone, uh, going missing or anything. Um, so I did. And then I brought, actually brought home some books and binders and stuff that I need to do some planning over the summer. So, which I didn't because last year I didn't realize until the last day that we don't get to keep our keys over the summer. So. I, uh, I wow, was, that's weird. Yeah, why is I, that? I don't know. I don't know what the pol- why that the policy is. In my last school, we could keep our keys. So every yeah, time what if you time. want to go in and work during the summer? Yeah, well, so basically, I brought the work with me, and then if okay. I so the times where I have myself scheduled to work, like I might work computer and everything, and and I'll have the stuff that I need. So I this time around, I was smart and I brought the stuff home. Now to bring us into our actual, well, this does sort of take place at a school, right? A school for gifted youngsters. It sure does. But everyone's gifted, remember? Oh, I guess. Anyway, (laughs) um, we're gonna. We are journeying, journeying to Professor Xavier's in the Xavier Institute for Gifted Young Youth, or whatever it's called, and we're looking at an X Men graphic novel from the eighties, which I deliberately picked because, because you know, it was never really. It was sort of on my list, and sort of not when I have my sort of graphic novel comic list of like, what could we, what could we talk about. And um, we had done two enormous books in in the span of a couple of episodes. We did Les Miserables and we did um, Vanity Fair. And I thought, well, you know, the pop culture episode was a little bit of a breather for us. But I thought I'd give our readers and listeners a break and pick something that is much, much, much shorter. So that, that, that was part of my motivation. But the themes themselves, I think, we can get quite a bit of mileage out of. But before I get into the actual history of the book and the uh, history of the where the X-Men were at this point and then my plot synopsis, I do. we usually do this um, for every book, and I think I'm going to extend this a little bit. So we always ask each other, what's your history with this book? But I also want to know... What is your X-Men origin story? Mm, that's, a, that's a good one. I think <laughs> it's the same as my comics origin story, which is that before nap time, when I was rather young, preschool age, I suppose, my mother would read these flare, I suppose they were flare, I think that's what they're called, fleet, fleet, baseball card-esque superhero cards. And so on the front, they would have a person or maybe a battle. I remember very vividly Thing versus the Hulk. And then on the back, there would be some sort of description, you know, first appearance, height and weight, a little bit about them. And so I know that there were a couple X-Men ones. I'm pretty sure there was a Banshee one. And I'm pretty sure there probably was a Cyclops one or um, maybe a Magneto versus Xavier one. So I had... I don't think I could distinguish between any properties when I was that young. <laughs> That'd be kind of weird if I did, like I was a nerd in utero. But, <laughs> but now thinking back to them, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I kind of had some sort of experience with them at that point in time. So I think, you know, Spider-Man's always been my, my top one. He's the one that I've been most familiar with. But then really getting into the X-Men would have been the animated series. And that was really enjoyable, and it was not, I think, 
it was catered for quit kids, but I think similar to Batman in the animated series, I mean, there were some dark things that happened. You know, they feel like they, I think, morph, you know, got killed, quote unquote, and uh, really they find out that's not true and that, you know, Mr. Sinister is, is kind of weird and, and frightening. So that was my main dive into it. And I really like Kitty Pride. I'd say she's my favorite X-Men character. And so in the past, I guess, 10 years or so, I just have been seeking out really great stories with her in it. And that's really taking me through Chris Claremont's run and, and getting those essentials. And that's when I read God Loves, Man Kills, because she is a part of that team at that point in time. And so I had read that. And was I, I feel like I recognized how heavy it was. And then I actually did it for a seminar class that I was teaching at the time. And then I, of course, read it again for this show. And I thought, yikes, I've forgotten actually how heavy this is. <laughs> so I think all of that to say that that, that is my X-Men. So going from cards to the animated series to actual comics. All right. Yeah. I did watch the animated series at least in its first season. And then I think subsequent seasons, Saturday mornings, I was I was in high school and either was busy on Saturday mornings or was sleeping in on Saturday mornings. <laughs> like, yeah, so so I, I missed there there's a point in like ninety four, ninety five where I just kinda didn't completely stop watching T V but like I cut back significantly, mainly because of the homework or, you know, the closest thing I could come to a social life or whatever club things at school. Anyway, um, mine is actually does begin with the comics. Um, I knew of the X-Men. The first time I collected comics was when I was collecting GI Joe and the Transformers back in like 1987. A friend of mine had a couple of uh, issues. I may have flipped through them, but I don't remember actually reading them or really knowing the characters aside from who Wolverine was. The first X-Men comic book I read and paid attention to, and I actually had to look this up. I had to look this up when they when it was published. Um, it was the X Men and New Teen Titans crossover, which I bought as part of a trade called Crossover Classics, the Marvel DC collection, and it, that was in about 1990-91. And then about four or five months later, a friend of mine was really into the X Men. This was after X Men One had come out, um, so he he sent me a copy of X Men Number One. I read it, and then I went out and picked up Uncanny and X Men, which were on the stands. And I think Uncanny was on issue two ninety or two ninety one. And then at the time, and then X-Men was on issue 9 or 10 or 11 or something. It was like at the very, very tail end of the runs of Jim Lee and Wilf Portacio as the artists right before they jumped to ship to Image. And I actually bought all of the X-Men titles, starting with the Executioner's Song crossover and ending with that god-awful Blood Ties crossover. So for the better part of about two years, I bought it. I did, uh, in the interim, I bought a couple of back issues. I did buy the trades for the Dark Phoenix Saga and Days of Future Past. And then over the last few, and I had, um, I had the Excalibur one-shot, the one that came out before the ongoing title. Oh, I yeah. really liked the Alan Davis. That wasn't the Mojo Madness one, was it? I believe so, yeah. Oh, it was Mojo Madness, okay. Maybe, I don't know. I, it was, um, it was just called Excalibur. 
Okay. So I don't know if they've ever renamed it in subsequent printings. I did buy this at the comic store. Um, the copy that I have is the oversized graphic novel, like, you know, how they used to have the graphic novels. Um, in terms of it's much bigger than a regular trade or yeah. graphic novel. And yep. this is not a first printing. It's probably a second printing because it says copyright 1982, 1990. But it doesn't say what printing it is. So I'm going to say it's probably a second or a third printing. Um, but it was like I probably got it about like 91, 92 because it was sitting at the on the very small trade paperback shelf at my LCS. Um, so, yeah, I, I actively read the X-Men for about two years. Shag says that everybody has a Batman phase. I also believe that everybody has some sort of X-Men phase in them, or at least they did back when like we were all collecting, especially since the X-Men were enormous back in the early 90s. And I have, since in the last few years, I have all of the X-Men essential volumes, the black and white ones, starting mm-hmm. with... The three classic X-Men, so starting with the Lee Kirby stuff, all the way up to, it's like volume eight or nine. Um, basically, I have the entire run from X-Men number one all the way to the end of Inferno. And I have the first two volumes of the X-Factor ones, but I've only read so far the first three classic X-Men. So I'm at the point in the essentials where I'm at giant size X-Men number one. So. But I have read I have read a lot of the '80s stuff. I've read Mutant Massacre and Fall of the Mutants and the Extinction Agenda and most of Inferno and stuff. So I, it's of all the Marvel things, and Marvel's a huge blind spot to me. Of all the Marvel things, <laughs> X Men is something I actually have a little bit of knowledge on. Okay. So yeah, so that's my that's my history with the X Men, which begins with the New Teen Titans. So there that, you go. <laughs> of course, you would connect it somehow. Yeah. That's. I will say though that comic book is one of my favorite single comic books of all time. Like I love the X Men New Teen Titans crossover. It's so good. I just <laughs> absolutely love it. So. And it I seems have, like that's a pretty good pair. Yeah, and I have a. Um, and it was 1982, so it was like classic Wolfman Perez, classic this this exact more or less this exact lineup. Although I think Kitty was in her sprite. Oh my gosh! Costume the yeah. The, um, she went through so yeah. many. Things. She's in the like the classic like the classic black and yellow X Men costume with the with, where she had the the hat that covered her whole face. Mm. I think that's the one she's wearing in the book. Um, I have my copy is signed by Walt and Louise Simonson. So I because I went and got I went and found a copy of it. So I was very very psyched about that. Anyway. I'll cover that one day on my own show. Let's get into the actual history of, of this book. This was published in November of 1982 as Marvel Graphic Novel Number 5. Um, this was back in the day when Marvel was publishing graphic novels in the early to late 1980s. Sort of an experimental thing. DC was kind of doing the same thing across town. They were all standalone graphic novels. Uh, the first of these was The Death of Captain Marvel. And until they stopped numbering them, notable entries in the series include number four, which is the New Mutants, which is the very first appearance of the New Mutants. It predates the uh, ongoing series, which ran for 100 issues. Number 12 was Dazzler, the movie, which I actually have. I picked up for like, I have digitally, I picked it up for like a buck ninety nine on Amazon a couple of years ago, and it's it's fun. Um, number 18 was The Sensational She-Hulk by John Byrne. Number 22 was an Amazing Spider-Man one called Hookie. 
Number 23 was Doctor Strange into Shambhala. Number 24 was Daredevil Love and War. 27 was Emperor Doom. There you go, Alan. And 33 was The Mighty Thor, I Whom Gods Would Destroy. Number 38 was Silver Surfer Judgment Day. And number 40 was Punisher Assassin's Guild. So they had, and in between them, they had a lot of different sci-fi fantasy type of things. Like I said, DC did this as well until um, the idea of trades and graphic novels really started to pick up as you went through the 80s and into the 90s. This was published as a standalone story, and for a long time it actually had questionable ties to the actual continuity of the series. It was later put into continuity because there was a sequel published, God Loves Man Kills 2, was in issues 25 through 30 of Extreme x Treme. Extreme X Men in the mid 2000s, and this and when this era was collected in the Essentials collections, which was Essential X Men Volume Four, God Loves Man Kills is placed between issues number 167 and 168 of the Uncanny X Men. It's about a month after it was actually published, because according to Mike's Amazing World, this came out the same month as Uncanny number 166. The reason for this placement, in case anyone really cares, at least according to Wikipedia, is that Cyclops leaves the team between issues 167 and 168, so this is the best place to put it. Mm. And, if I need to delineate this further, number 168 is the famous Professor Xavier is a Jerk. (gasps) That is one of my favorite scenes! Yeah, and that's also the first appearance of Madeline Pryor, so that puts us about four months before Wolverine's wedding and a full three years before the resurrection of Jean Grey. Now, while the artist in the graphic novel is Brent Eric Anderson, the original artist was supposed to be Neil Adams. He was offered the job by Jim Shooter, and he had even drawn six pages of it, but when Shooter could not produce a contract that wasn't just work for hire, Adams balked and walked away from the project. This information, by the way, is courtesy of Brian Cronin's column, Comic Book Legends Revealed, over at Comic Book Resources. I'll include a link in the show notes to to my uh, sources here. What's also interesting about this graphic novel, and something that suggests that it actually wasn't originally intended to be part of continuity, is the fact that on Neil Adams' six pages that he drew, Magneto was slated to be killed by Stryker's purifiers, or at least that's what it looked like. Whether or not this is actually meant to be part of the final story, or if Magneto actually dies, according to Brian Cronin, is up for debate. All we have to show for it are six pencil pages with no dialogue from an artist working off of an outline who never went on to do the final artwork. So for all we know, that could have been changed by the end, or he could have come back or whatever. The finished product, though, does have a legacy beyond its publication. Elements and aspects of it were incorporated into 2003's X2 X-Men United, which, from what I remember, is the best of the original three X-Men movies from the early 2000s. So, at least from from what I remember. I remember uh, X-Men The Last Stand was trash, and the first X-Men movie is pretty solid. So let's get on to our plot synopsis. We open with two African-American children who are running through the playground of an elementary school in the middle of the night. They are being pursued by a group of adults who are armed and want to kill them. When the adults, called the Purifiers, catch up to them, they execute the kids and hang them up on the swing set. The slur, Muty, Mm. written or Muty, written across the bottom of one of the swings. The bodies are soon found by Magneto, who takes the bodies down and declares vengeance for the two dead children. 
In New York, William Stryker, head of the Evangelical Stryker Crusade, which is located at 9 West 57th Street near Central Park behind the Plaza Hotel. Not because Claremont provides the caption, but because I recognized the building and confirmed it via Google Maps because I'm that much of a nerd. Stryker is preparing his latest sermon and is interrupted by his secretary, who tells him that his briefing tapes are ready. The tapes are of the X-Men. We are introduced to our six current team members, Cyclops, Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, Ariel, who was Kitty Pride. I never used Kitty Pride's um, code names, by the way. I've always referred to who as Kitty Pride. As Kitty Pride. Yeah, well, no, Shadowcat, Sh- Ariel, Sprite. Yeah. You know, Shadowcat's my fa- I feel like, and that's seven been up, the absolutely. more, the one that's kept, I think, for most. Yeah. yeah. That was her, uh, that was her code name in Excalibur, I believe, right? Sprite? So, no, Sh- uh, Shadowcat. Yeah, and it was, yeah. I would say that it's her original one, but I could be wrong. Maybe she was yeah. just Kitty Pride, and then, yeah. So we'll just, I, I'm, I think I can go with Kitty Pride through like pretty much the entire synopsis here. That's so let's fine. get back to that. Yeah. So Nightcrawler is the other one. It also mentions that P- Professor Charles Xavier is the founder of the team. It's Professor X who is the most important of the X Men to, p- to both Stryker and to our plot because Stryker is set to debate him on Nightline that evening. We'll wind up getting to that in a bit, but before we do, we head up to Westchester County, where Kitty Pride, a.k.a. Ariel, is involved in a fist fight with a kid named Danny outside Stevie Hunter's dance studio. The fight is over the fact that Danny called Kitty a mutie lover. Mm-hmm. Peter, a.k.a. Colossus, and his sister Ileana, who at one point or another has the uh, mutant identity of magic, M-A-G-I-C-K, but I can't remember where this lies in that whole thing, but I do know that she has mutant power. I don't think she knows yet, does she? Yeah, I, this may predate all that, you're right. So Peter and Ileana uh, break up the fight. Stevie tells Kitty that they were only words, to which Kitty yells that Stevie wouldn't have been liked it if Danny had used another particularly tolerable racial slur. We all know what that is, and I will not say it, even mm-hmm. though um, I believe Claremont actually prints it. Yep. Unknown to all of them, they are being watched. Still bruised in both face and ego, Kitty heads back home and gathers around the big screen TV with all of the X-Men except for Storm and Cyclops who are with Professor X in Manhattan to watch Xavier and Stryker discuss Mutants on Nightline, which is hosted by a journalist named John Cheever who has the name of a famous American author but looks exactly like Clark Kent. While Xavier makes more logical appeals, Stryker goes for the emotion and fear and generally wins, if you could call it that. To blow off some steam, the X-Men head to the Danger Room. Meanwhile, the limo transporting Professor X, Storm, and Cyclops is ambushed in Central Park by the same people who had killed the children in the beginning of our story. The woman leading the charge tells the others to notify the Reverend that the mission has been accomplished. The X-Men get a call at the mansion, and the next day, Ileana comforts Kitty, who then finds a surveillance device in the woods. Using her phasing powers, Kitty shorts it out, because in case you're not familiar with it, anytime Kitty faces... You're familiar with this, I'm talking to our listeners. If you're unfamiliar <laughs> with Kitty Pryde's powers, she can phase through things like a ghost, but if she fades, phases through electronics, she can actually essentially cause them to uh, malfunction. So she does this on purpose, hoping that whomever was watching them will come and fix the surveillance device. She and Ileana wait patiently in the bushes for someone to show up while in Central Park. Colossus, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler investigate the accident from the previous night. 
Wolverine is convinced that their three companions are still alive, and Nightcrawler then spots the Purifier's car. They go after it, and a chase ensues. The Purifiers almost get the upper hand, but our heroes are saved by, by Magneto, who comes in peace. Upstate, someone finally shows up to fix that surveillance device. It's the same woman and her team from earlier, and they discover Ileana. Kitty manages to evade capture by facing through the ground, and the woman, whose name we learn is Anne, kidnaps Ilyana. Kitty tags along in the trunk of the car, although it seems that Anne is aware of this and orders nerve gas to be pumped through the trunk. At the mansion, the X-Men and Magneto interrogate one of the captured purifiers and learn that they are all part of the Striker Crusade, an anti-mutant organization whose mission it is to destroy mutant kind. We cut to what appears to be the Twin Towers, and it looks like Charles Xavier is being crucified by his own X-Men. They hoist him up and begin tearing at his own organs until a Christ-like figure shows up to offer him salvation. However, it's not as easy as it looks, as Stryker scientist Philip curses that it didn't work. Storm and Cyclops, who are shackled, ask why Stryker is doing all of this. He explains that he used to be in the army and helped to run atomic bomb testing. His wife became pregnant and went into labor after a car accident. He delivered the child in the middle of the desert by the wrecked car, but when he saw what he described as, quote, a monster, he killed it. He then broke his wife's neck and set fire to the car as a way to hide the evidence. In the years that followed, he became an alcoholic, which resulted in his dishonorable discharge from the service. Eventually, he read an article by Charles Xavier that talked about mutants and determined that the child he killed was a mutant, and from there, had the divine idea to lead a religious anti-mutant crusade. Cyclops asks about how he learned about the X-Men, and Stryker explains that Fred Duncan, a former FBI liaison to the X-Men, is a devoted member of the Stryker Crusade and provided him with that information. This led to Stryker's belief that Professor X is actually the Antichrist, hence the effort to destroy the X-Men. Cyclops wonders why he hasn't killed them yet, and Stryker says that he'll reveal that soon enough. They're interrupted by a phone call from Anne about Ileana and Kitty, and Stryker's order regarding Kitty is Kitty is to kill her. Storm yells out in protest and is then shut up by having the lid of whatever containment prison thingy she was wearing <laughs> closed on her. Yeah, it's like a big supervillain containment unit thing. It's, yeah, I just liked it's, your it's, technical it's, yeah, it's very comic book it. tech, you know. Yeah. Um, in the South Bronx, Anne and the purifiers shoot up the trunk of the car, thinking that they've killed Kitty, but she has phased through and escaped. She comes across a menacing group of punks, because it's a Chris Claremont X-Men comic, and we've got to have a menacing group of punks who then fight the purifiers, buying enough time for her to get away. She calls the mansion and finally gets Kurt, but not before the payphone she's calling from is blown up by the purifiers. Kitty manages to face through the fire in time and makes her way to the subway. The purifiers follow, storm the subway, shoot a transit cop, and are about to get Kitty when Magneto shows up with the X-Men and they rescue her. They bring the cop to the hospital while across town a broken Charles Xavier appears to accept William Stryker as his lord and savior and on his instructions appears to kill both Cyclops and Storm. Kitty and Nightcrawler find Philip, the scientist, and get the location of Professor X, Cyclops, and Storm out of him. And then later, in the, at, at the Stryker building, Magneto rescues him and Ileana by lifting the elevator containing them out of the building. When Scott and Aurora come to, Magneto explains that he's working with them and they agree to work together to stop 
Stryker. We cut again to live coverage to Stryker's latest rally at Madison Square Garden. There are thousands in the audience, including a United States Senator, and Stryker preaches his anti-mutant propaganda. While he preaches, people with mutant powers, both manifest and latent, begin to feel searing pain. What Stryker has done, by the way, is to use Professor X and his Cerebro technology for the purposes of hunting and killing mutants. If you're unfamiliar with the concepts of Cerebro, it's a giant computer because it's always a giant computer. But it's a computer that that Charles Xavier uses to detect mutants, and they have essentially reworked it to make it into a mutant killing machine. At this moment... Magneto lifts up the roof of Madison Square Garden and goes inside. Stryker orders Professor X to hit him with a psychic blast that sends Magneto into the crowd. Outside the main part of the arena, the X-Men try to get there to their mentor with the hopes of helping him or at least shutting him down. On stage, Anne, the head of the purifiers, is suffering from a nosebleed. This means that she is a mutant, and even though she didn't know that, it's enough for Stryker to push her off of his podium. It's high enough off of the arena floor that when she lands on her head, she breaks her neck and dies. Mm. All of this, by the way, is caught on live television. The police begin to control a crowd that is getting more and more unruly. The X-Men find Professor X and manage to knock him unconscious and destroy Stryker's machine. The threat ended. They confront Stryker on stage. He and Cyclops go back and forth about the supposed ideals of everything, with Cyclops saying, For all you know, we could be the real race, the human race, and the rest of you could be the mutants. Stryker then points at Nightcrawler and yells, Human? You dare call that thing human? Kitty steps in and yells that Nightcrawler, her friend, is more human than he could ever be, and if it came down to choosing Stryker's god and her friend, she would choose her friend. Stryker pulls a gun and is about to shoot Kitty, but is instead shot in the chest by a police officer. A few days later at the X-Mansion, the team watches a news report on Stryker's arraignment, and Magneto, Charles, and Cyclops discuss what the correct path might be regarding the relationship between humans and mutants. Charles does wonder if his way doesn't work, but Scott won't give up that easily. Magneto then offers his hand to Charles, asking him to join his more forceful, some would say brutal, way of doing things. Charles can't, and Magneto leaves the X-Men to carry on their mission. All right, so that is God Loves, Man Kills. I asked the same question after every summary. Did you like this? I did really like it. I was, I I know you don't like the word, but I was impacted by it when I first read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was affected by it when I first read it and... I think more so now, you know, I think as, as I grow older, I become more culturally and socially aware. And so things hit me differently. And, and it's interesting because as I was reading in that flashback and getting to understand Schreiker and his history, I thought, wow, this is dark. And then I went to Bush Gardens yesterday, actually, with a now former student who is going to your school and you might teach her, actually. And so I kind of like wanted one last hurrah with her because I guess I have become somewhat of a mentor to her. And so her father to me looks like the actor who plays William Stryker in the Wolverine series. Mm-hmm. And. She was asking me, oh, what, what would that entail? Because she does know the, the history and things like that. And then I explained about, like, he would have a mutant child. And then the mutant child would 
have to be killed and then the mother's neck and and as i was explaining this i was like wow this is actually i mean i thought it was dark but explaining it to someone makes it even darker and that was all while we're just walking around bush gardens so i thought yikes but any all that to say that yes i do really enjoy it but it is um one of the more i think thought-provoking and deeper graphic novels that are that are superhero oriented because we know graphic novels can have yeah. deep messages that i've yeah. read yeah no and i agree and i like this as well this is in my top five um of x-men stories um i was attracted to it back in the early 90s because it was a graphic novel sitting on a shelf and the title God Loves Man Kills is admittedly a very cool sounding title. You know, it gets your attention. And I read it and I was like, I was blown away by how good it was back then and even rereading it now, I'm like, wow, this holds up. This one of the questions, but um, sort of, but it it holds up as a story really, really well. Um, And uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of its time Although at the same time, there are elements of it where I'm like, I totally see this in today's society. And I was just like, yeah. So I, and I, I, I like the writing. I like the art. And I just like the whole presentation of it. Um, even as a casual of an X-Men fan that I am, it, it's still one of my favorites. So I've never had to explain it to anybody, though. Just be aware. Learn from my, uh, my experience. So we, um, so we, we get this story. And, and the thing, the first question I had was, so you think of the most famous X-Men stories. Um, and just to pull back the curtain on when we're recording this, uh, Dark Phoenix comes out two days from now. Dark Phoenix is probably the most famous oh. X-Men story there is. Followed by, by Days of Future Past. Uh, and then you get stuff like... If you're the comics fans, know Age of Apocalypse, The Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, Inferno, The Extinction Agenda. Those are the only ones I can name off the top of my head. Oh, Executioner's Song. This is a lot different than those. Those are like almost science fiction, very, very superhero-y. There's supervillains, there's huge battles, there's... You know, like they're fighting against Apocalypse or the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants or um, Little Dark Phoenix. You know, they're, they're, the Dark Phoenix climaxes on the moon, for crying out loud. You know, like, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of the fantastical stuff in this. And aside from the mutant powers of the X-Men and maybe the technological contraption that Stryker has to keep... Uh, Storm and Cyclops in shackles. There's not really very much of that, if nothing, if not anything at all, aside from what the, that and like maybe the danger room. Um, so that's kind of how it's different. Do you think that works? Do you think that that you know? Do the X Men translate very well to a street level thing like this, or did it seem very <laughs> awkward? No, I think it does tr- um, translate well because the X-Men, I mean, the whole premise is to almost be for the people and trying to protect them. And, and sure, that's true of Avengers and everything, but I feel like Avengers always have these larger mm-hmm. threats than perhaps the X-Men normally do. But, you know, then, of course, you do have Arcade and you do have the Star Jammers yeah. and all of that. So, yeah, I do. I, I know that this – but I think that this works really well. And they're at a school. Mm-hmm. They're in town. And they're – one of their primary, you know, directives or drives is to 
be treated as everyone else and um, there to be no di- – so I think this is a, a perfect way for that to be shown. So we don't open with the X-Men, actually. We open with um, – well, there is there's, there's a mutant in there. There's, there's three, but there's, yeah. uh, there's a super-powered mutant there in Magneto. But um, – before that, we open with the scene with these two kids being chased and then killed, executed, and then hung up on a playground with the word, the slur of muty. Um, and so, how does that heighten the issue going on in the story? Why are we using, why is Claremont using black children? Um, what's it reminiscent of, and, and how would we think if, how would it change? Like if they were adult and white, would it be any different? I mean, like, is, is he going for a very specific image here? I feel like he is, I think. And I have an addition where he actually, there's an intro in the beginning by Claremont and huh. there's an outro of like how the story goes about. I don't know what edition that is. I don't know no, if you I have don't. that, but it is very reminiscent to, a lynching that mm-hmm. is happening and even in the beginning i forgot because i guess there's enough span of time and so as i was reading this i thought yikes this is really terrible and he claremont delays a while until you realize that they are mutants and and it's really only with the placard that you realize because otherwise like they shot the parents they were going after these kids it seemed like it was a racial attack and i think that if they were white people you would wonder why a bunch of you know why people were going after white people mm-hmm. i think the only way that it could pack as much of an emotional punch would be like maybe if they were like of the lgbtqa yeah. group and then you know so then there's so it just seems like he's able to layer this is so it's clearly mutant oriented but to have something else i think packs more of a punch because it shows that hey this is a fantasy story with mutants but actually this kind of stuff actually happens and so i think that's why it's really powerful does it i mean i feel like it has a huge message and I wonder you know should he have flipped it around and had the the mutant been really clear in the beginning and then have that layer underneath but you know he did what he was going to do and and it's uh it's very powerful I yeah I agree with you and I don't think that it would have worked if they were adult or they were white um because uh, I know he's going for the for the analogy of you know mutant hatred and and racism and um, if they were, I'm not trying not to come off as insensitive here. If they were gay or, or anything else, um, there would have had to been some sort of explanation done. Yeah. Because you can't spot a gay person just by looking at them. You know, like you know. Uh, so, like at least in the comic, you know, the panels of a comic book. So they'd have you'd have to have them maybe one of the villains like maybe monologue a little bit. Yeah. In this case, you know, they're clearly African American kids. Um, you know, and mm-hmm. they it's a brutal three pages. You know, and yep. I mean, thankfully, and what Claremont does and what Anderson does, and I'm sure that, I mean, this is not approved by the comics code because it's a graphic novel, so it was a direct only thing and they didn't have to get the approval. But to their credit, they don't show their actual deaths. The kids' powers are starting to manifest, and then you see the mm. the, the gun going off, the boom, the, the little girl next to her brother's body, but you only see kind of like 
the idea that he's dead and, and she picks up her hand and her hand is, is covered in blood. She says, why? And there's another gunshot. And um, you don't get the actual, like, you know, we don't see the we see the dead bodies from like far further away when Magneto sees them and we don't see a lot of gore and um, I'm not the first person to say this but sometimes it's the stuff that you leave out that makes it more leaving the stuff out makes it more brutal of a scene because your mind is going to fill in the blanks as to what exactly was happening there whereas you know if you if you were to show the violence and gore full on you get desensitized mm. to it and it doesn't have an impact and it kind of seems actually kind of gratuitous and almost vulgar. Please take note of that, Jeff Johns, whenever you handled 90s Titans. So, <laughs> oh, oh my God, goodness. But that's, what ha- that's what's been happening a lot in like more recent comics. And granted, it happened back in the 90s as well, where it's like, you know, this is edgy and mature, so we're going to show the decapitation or we're going to show the throat cut like it's a Friday the 13th movie. But it's ineffective. It just looks... it. it, it, it it doesn't age well, and this ages really well with that regard. So, um, mm. I, I guess he's in my mind. He is going for the analogy of racism, and and as you pointed out, the start of the Holocaust, the idea that we fear the other, so we must eliminate the other. So I don't know if it's exactly one to one. I don't personally like you know. There's the mutants have powers, so there's the establishment of that as sort of a issue of combat between you know these these people and the mutants but at the same time and maybe that's the other thing maybe that's why he used the children because they're kids and they're innocent you know a mutant adult if they were killing magneto i don't know if you'd know how to feel because he's a villain you know like so here it it just it it heightens the brutality that it's children because and, and it does have that sort of it has the echoes and it has the direct connection to that, um, to the way this would happen back pre-civil rights movement or during the civil rights movement, in fact, and then um, toward the very opening stages of of the Holocaust in Germany. I mean, what's your take on that? The, the connection in that Magneto found them? Uh, no, no, the connection in that just the whole hatred of mutants and the scene of the... <laughs> of the um, yeah, of the execution as, as a lynching and, and these things. Yeah, I think you know that's something that makes the mutants so compelling. But it's it's always been weird to me because I think about the Avengers and they're clearly the other as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they have powers and everything, but a lot of them you have to kind of go through this because this is something that I talked about in my class that a lot of the Avengers is like caused by an accident of some sort um, or it was scientific, whereas the mutants were born with it. And so, you know, there's a there's something there. And yeah, I think the mutants just speak for anyone who is and other if you know the person that we compare it to would be like white cisgendered male um and then you what you forgot hetero yeah <laughs> you gotta you gotta hetero, check all the boxes yeah, when like, you do this something else white yeah. hetero cisgendered so male yeah <laughs> And I get sorry. And uh and sorry about that, Tom. I don't know. <laughs> and I guess also Christian? I don't know, because there's a bit of a I mean, the Jewish thing pops up. You've got of course Magneto, you also have There 
there Kitty, is a, who's there also is a um a thread that has run through our history of the predominance of the wasp. You know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, I thought you meant the wasp, the wasp. No, not Jan- like, Janet not, Van not, Dyne? Not the white Anglo-Saxon <laughs> Protestant, because um, if, with the exception of two presidents, um, well, I don't... Uh, well, I don't know what what this current this current thing in our White House is right now, but the, with the exception of two presidents prior to now, um, all of them have been white, and uh, because of course Barack Obama was not was he was half white. His his mother was white, I believe. Um, I think his yeah his mother was white. His father was was black, so he doesn't qualify for the white. But I believe Anglo-Saxon Protestant part of him. I believe he was. Protestant, and then Kennedy was Catholic. So, other than that, all of the presidents of the United States have been, you know, the leaders of the country have, you know, a, on that office have been have been, um, you know, white Anglo-Saxon male Protestants more or less. So it's a predominant through line of things. And and you're right. I think you're right by by attaching the label of Christian in quotes. So the sort of because I know that I know that like I, when we talked about nothing better, you talked about whether or not like one of the characters was a Christian by certain definitions. So yeah. not going by that particular definition. God, we'll say God. let's do, like well, the, kind of the, the, the general like label category of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and 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 in and this subset in this particular graphic novel, it is a particular sect of evangelical Christianity. Of the, um, the striker is clearly modeled after like Jerry Falwell and Jim Baker and um, maybe Billy Graham a little bit um, because the 80s was the age of the height of the televangelist. Um, 2020 did a great piece on Jim Baker uh, a, a few months ago. And the PTL and the 700 Club and like those sorts of shows, and that's clearly what Claremont's pulling from for for Stryker. So I think your assessment of Christian, I'm hijacking this conversation. I apologize. <laughs> well, I'm just not sure where to go from but there. I, I but just, uh, yeah, no, it yeah. works. I think that's that's the purpose for the X Men. Obviously, I think you have the two ideologies of how to. Sorry, not the X Men. I should mutant kind. Um, and, you know, sometimes it, they can hide it. And, you know, I think that works for the LGBTQA community in that you can't, just like you said, you won't be able to look at someone, even though people have this ridiculous thing about gaydars. Um, you won't be able to look at someone and say, yes, that person's gay. So, you know, there's that. Or there are the the, the mutants that, like, you clearly, like, leech, I think, is one of those big mutants that you can, like, Obviously, yeah, there's night or crawler, Nightcrawler. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, obviously color that identifies you right away. And so I think that works really well with just other communities, which I just feel like at this time, though, Claremont is more addressing racial than I think sexual, because I mm-hmm. feel like there probably weren't really any gay characters that though I'd have to do some research, but just kind of thinking about this time. Um, and then you've got the two ideologies of Xavier and Magneto, which seem to reflect the um, more peaceful and, you know, love your enemy and work alongside them, sort of, I said enemy, I didn't mean that, 
love the other people that are different, you know, different from you, uh, which would be the the Dr. Martin Luther King. And then the more hostile, like we are the better of them and we need to take charge. And that's very much the the Malcolm X. So it it works here and you start to to see it um, manifest here as well, though. Well, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into some stuff that happens. Yeah. And I mean, um, staying on the what I was incoherently rambling about. Um, I don't know. See, like you and I both, I mean, you're way more religious than I am. I, I was raised in the Lutheran church and then essentially dropped out at some point in my early, um, in my twenties. But, um, but, but know enough, you know, also went to a Jesuit college. So knowing enough of, of various denominations that's the word i was looking for denominations of christianity and having seen things documentaries and things about like people like striker it strikes me as is fair a fairly accurate representation do you think this is a fairly accurate depiction of like this iteration of quote christianity no matter like how bastardized it may be i mean like what's your take on striker as a as as that type of <laughs> televised yeah, that evangelist, type of pastor, that type of reverend, you know. Uh, uh, I guess he has the charisma. Um, I it was rather off putting that he uses Bible quotes but doesn't quote where it's coming mm. from. And uh, as I continue in my Christian journey, out of context Bible quotes, anyways, really. Um, annoy me because like just stay off Twitter, I mean, you can't just take it out of context <laughs> you stay off Twitter yeah you just can't take things out of context because yes. um, you could turn anything into what you want to say without knowing yeah, the, the Westboro context. Baptist Church is um, different but, <laughs> oh, the uh, yeah so I have a problem with him not because it goes back and forth between New and Old Testament. The majority of the stuff is mm-hmm. Old Testament because of the law stuff, so you can tell the really legalistic things. Um, but then there's one that like clearly was like Jesus mm-hmm. speaking. But I wished for, and maybe Claremont was a little nervous about it, but I wish he would have at least quoted because someone would clearly say the quote and then Leviticus, yeah. you know, want it they they should have done that. Um but the char- the charisma is certainly there and that he's got this following um and yeah, preaching to people, but everything else is like if if there is this sort of message, like there's a clear problem when he's saying like really hateful things. I'm really hoping that and uh, unfortunately, you know, revelation is sort of pointing towards this sort of thing happening, but who in their right mind would be like, yeah, yeah, this is someone we need to follow, even though he's like preaching hate, but using the the Bible to, uh, to prove it, uh, which is pretty terrible. So, yeah. Yeah. Although there's that charismatic sort of appeal to emotions and, um, if we're going sure. for an allegory, an allegory, analogy of say the Holocaust, and you look like at it like at like an Adolf Hitler, who, in some ways, was preaching his own doctrine, but in other ways was simply just attaching himself to feelings that were already there, you know, like so so a novel, a novel or a book that we're going to look at somewhere down the road is Elie Wiesel's Night. And whenever I used to teach that, the point I used to make, and I think it always just went in one ear out the other with the uh, the kids I used to teach up in the, my former school, was that you can't act like Hitler came out of nowhere. You know, like anti-Semitism existed for th- at least a couple, like nearly a couple thousand years prior to Adolf Hitler. And what he was doing 
was grasping a feeling that a lot of these people had and stirring them up and then mainstreaming it. And actually, and, and what's interesting, you bring up how he was like quoting a lot of these Old Testament things. That's a, what I see a lot of anti-gay people do, especially online. They'll like throw out, I don't even know what, what bug, I want to say it's like in Leviticus or something like that. Some phrase, like, it's a- you know, some, some, some verse from Leviticus or something, or one of those okay. one of one of the Old Testament books, or Genesis with Sodom yeah, and Gomorrah yeah. and the people. Yeah, it, yeah. so it's like yeah. it's it's really in. I mean, this is really in line with a lot of that, you know. And he's he's just it's twisting, twisting words. I mean, would this be like the? I don't know if the phrase "false prophet" applies here, but no, yeah, that's what I'm talking about because he's able um, he seems to have this knowledge so that people buy I mean, it's like, you've read the Aeneid mm-hmm. yeah, remember ago, yeah. rumor yeah, remember in book four after Aeneas and Dido get together physically and rumor flies and it's an allegory because it's rumor but it's also like rumor yeah. personified and the reason she's so powerful is because she says some truth and people know that it's true that then she's able to filter it through their like yeah. lies too and because they believe the truth they're like more easily able to believe the lies so with this thing he seems like he has a knowledge of just like the pharisees he has a knowledge of the old and new testament he seems like he knows what he's talking about and so well of course we should listen to this guy yeah these mutants are they're different where the you know the pure race these this is an abomination you know creation has fallen this isn't what god intended Absolutely, people would be, but there's no love. Me- that's like the whole thing is if someone were to say, hey, where's the message of love that Christ had? That's when everything falls apart. But no one does for some reason. Well, some people do in the audience, but still, you know, when he pushes that woman off the the um, yeah. stage, which I was thinking, gosh, they filmed that I know, whole that's thing. That's a brutal scene, too. And, and, and- that would, and, and it it's, is brutal. It's drawn really well because they have the the television camera frames over her, and it's like literally following yes. her down. So you get that sense of movement that they that they just stayed with her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, and it's like I could just think about you know how the news says like the following images mm-hmm. are graphic, but I mean people are still. Some people are shocked. I think that he just killed one of his acolytes, and other people are like, "Well, she was a mutant." Yeah. So I mean, you've got it. People, people are going to be blind to some some things in the uh, in the future, and and some people will have their eyes yeah, wide so open. You, so you brought up the the idea that um, that one of the things that 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 Jesus taught was to um, pretty much like that message of love and even love and compassion for those who were considered the dregs of society and sinners mm. um and in the very beginning of the novel of uh, the novel the well, the graphic novel um uh, <laughs> yeah kitty gets into this fight with this kid and the kid called her a meaty lover and you know the kid runs off and that's like just this really nasty insult to her uh, aside from the fact that kitty's immune but the kid doesn't know that but at the same yeah. time like you know and then and then she's like yells at stevie you know like hey what if he called me an end lover and stevie's mm. kind of like you know what he's she's kind of right is is that a am i is it a false equivalence or is is that what is that right like you know mutant lovers are almost deemed worse than mutants themselves yeah. oh that's interesting even worse than mutants yeah. themselves um Hmm. No, I I don't know if they're worse. I think it's just like if you're gonna be you're gonna be alongside them, and I, and I sort of think about Snick, 
Is that what it was called? Yes. SNCC. And the sit-ins. and Yeah, we did March. And the sit-ins. And uh, I've always, yeah, I've been moved just that, you know, there are always white, there have been white people in that group alongside the bike. So you see the images mm-hmm. and you're like, you know, this wasn't necessarily their fight. But I'm so happy that they stuck their neck out and, and, and did this, you know, for them. And, um and they had the consequence as well. And so I think it's not like they're worse, but I think they're just like, if you've decided to stand alongside them, you're going to be counted with them. Sort yeah. Of thing. And, um, and our, and our good mutual friend, Donovan Morgan Grant has done a couple of episodes of questions. We don't have answers about allyship, you know, being an ally in that regard. Yeah. I, I don't know about you. I find that to be really, really important. Um, absolutely. Because I'm not gay or black or, Latinx right. or, 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 or transgender or, or what have you. So my role in all of this is to be supportive in a way that they feel that they're being supportive. Um, I don't think I'm always... Yeah. And at one point, it comes down to just being human yeah. and supporting that they yeah. are human and they deserve as much as any other human yeah. does. And, and, it's, and it's it's little... It can be little things. Like, I've had transgendered students, and one of them that I had, his dead name was still on the attendance rolls. Did you say his dead name? You know what a dead name? name is to a transgender person? Oh, 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 yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, so okay. his dead name was on the... I was on the official... Was in power school when I went to log attendance every day. Now... Granted, that's because he was slow on getting the paperwork into the main office to put in, <laughs> to put it in. But at the beginning of the year before I met him, he emailed me and said, "Hey, I just wanted you to know this is who I am. This is my name. It's going to say this name on attendance. Could you please call me by my name and use the correct pronouns?" And um, I emailed him back. I was like, "Sure, sure. It's, you know, it's, it'll be it'll be great. I'm looking forward to meeting you and everything." And he goes, "He was in my AP class as a senior." And you know, like, and the thing is, like, I, I don't talk about these things a lot because it's like, you know, it's not really my place to. I feel like I'm bragging when I do, like, you know, hey, I treat a transgender person like a human. Like, you know, congratulations, you did the bare minimum in life, batteries. <laughs> but, but at the same time, like, you know, I think of allyship, and I think of like sometimes, like, you know, maybe it is little things like that sometimes, um, and and maybe calling out, you know, mutant phobia in the case of Kitty Pride is also being a good ally. Because he doesn't know she's a mutant. It mm. also reminds me of Scout Finch, because Scout mm. Finch gets into a fight into killing Mockingbird to kill a Mockingbird, very very similar to this, because one of the kids at school calls her father an end lover because her father's the one who takes Tom Robinson's case, and I read that and it was it 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 never dawned on me until reading it this time. I went right to to kill a Mockingbird. And I was like, maybe Claremont was going for that too, because Kitty Pride is very Scout Finch esque in some way. You know, that scrappy yeah. girl type of thing. Type of thing. It's interesting. It was her, you know, because yes, she's a mm-hmm. mutant, uh, and she's friend with uh, Stevie. There, I was about to call her Stevie next, <laughs> and it's on Stevie Hunter, and she's Jewish, but it's. She's also slightly hypocritical, mm. and she redeems herself in the end, yeah. I would say. But if you have any history with Kitty Pride, because she seems really great in this story, but she was really turned off by Nightcrawler when she first came on into the into the mansion. Like, freaked out by him. Um, grossed out is not the word that I want to say, but just like, you know, 
treating yeah. him as any regular you know person would and so she finally does advocate for him but i mean she has a bit of that hatred there too i mean she was not welcoming towards him at yeah. all um and actually that keys into the end where she defends him mm-hmm. so you see now it works for the sake of the story, but I guess if you're a longtime X-Men reader at this point, it shows character growth, too. So it's a double payoff, which is good. It's really, really well-written. Like, you could be a novice X-Men person, and I was when I first read this, and really enjoy it. And then there are things that are, at least in my mind, true to what was going on in the book at the time and you know, show some growth of the characters over time at, at this point. So Stryker has his purifiers. How are they different or similar to both domestic terrorists and and then oh. fictional groups like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> domestic terror. Well, they're pretty bad, aren't they? I would say that they are because they are on the domestic yeah. terrorist side they are targeting certain groups of people and violent means and they also don't care about collateral damage for instance the two black kids at the beginning their parents i did they kill them just because they may have carried the mute mutant mm-hmm. gene or was it just whatever i they were killing other people on the street i can't remember now I guess it was the cops, wasn't it, when they were having that battle? And uh, Kitty said, stop, they have nothing to do with this. Or maybe it was. I can't remember what was happening, though. But they killed somebody in the streets during... uh, Oh, 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 it is the cop there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's up on the roof, I suppose. What page is this? Uh, There aren't any page numbers. She kills the transit cop in the subway. Oh, it was the... Yeah, it was the subway. That's what it was. Thank you. Yes. So, anyway, just to say that, you know, get out of my way kind of thing. And they have their own... They have their mission, and uh, it's a religious... Uh, a re- religiously driven mission. So that's similar to, I would say, some terrorists. And regard, yeah, Brotherhood of the Evil Mutants. They're trying to protect their own race from another race. They believe that they're superior, and they again will go and attack. So yeah, I would say they're similar to both of those, which is interesting because they don't take a step back and think, "Yikes, maybe we shouldn't be doing this." No, I agree, and there is a there's such a cult like aspect to this, but it but since it's more legitimized by the fact that Stryker's so popular, you can't exactly call it a cult. Um, but yeah, but this movement has it, it has shades of both. Um, and then uh, when Xavier uh, Charles Xavier appears to die, and so mm. uh, Scott and in Aurora and uh, Ileana says to Kitty if not for the depths of grief how could we measure the heights of joy uh, so what are your thoughts yeah. on this statement <laughs> on that particular quote it's pretty yeah. powerful it's pretty powerful because any feeling would be a feeling unless you were able to know I think either opposite because every day would be just like a normal day um, and you wouldn't know what joy or happiness would be 
unless you understood the opposite of that or else you could just think, well, this is just general standard feelings and everything. I, I, I think that it's, it's pretty powerful. And it also comes to, to tell us that I think you need to hold on to and really appreciate those moments of joy because, you know, anything could happen and, um, you know, yeah. uh, yeah, I agree. we, we go through, we go through struggles and, and everything. Thing and we try to persevere, but it's it's great to hold on to those moments of joy and be even more excited once we overcome those struggles. Not to stereotype here, but doesn't that not sound like a very Russian thing to say? <laughs> a Russian That's thing to say, like, probably. Yeah. I'm sure Tolstoy yeah. Dostoevsky yeah. said something That's like what that. I was yeah, thinking of too. But no, I agree with you. And there's there's that. Um. Yeah, and 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 for Ileana, who is who is young, to have mm. that sort of insight is is also uh, makes makes the statement profound. Especially Kitty, who is a teenage girl, who is you know, and teenage girls are do not always have the most handle on things like you know, like situations like this, because maybe they've never really had to experience situations like this. So it's she's not she's not being patronizing in the way that Stevie mm-hmm. is after Kitty gets into the fight at the dance studio. So yeah. Stevie Stevie kind of fails in her mission until like, you know, she kind of gets redeemed at the end where she starts crying over the fact that like, you know, she knew she was wrong. Stevie's not like Stevie's basically patronizing Kitty by like, you know, being hey, they're just words, you know, like and, and Kitty knows it. Um here Liana actually is being like, you know, is not being that way. She genuinely feels like that and and, it, and it, it's it's way more helpful. Of course, they're not dead. Um, and uh, we get this scene where strikers, scientist guys, are basically making um, him hallucinate, uh, Xavier hallucinate. And he, we see this thing where, like, the X Men are all, it's like out of a horror movie, like, the X Men are all monsters, and they've got, they, they are, they're like all monstrous, and they, they, um, they, they strap him to the cross, sorry, they nail him to the cross. Let me go with the correct symbolism here. Um, and then they basically tear his innards out, you know, like, like, um, in what way does that imagined crucifixion of Xavier serve Stryker's purpose? And in what way does it contradict his purpose? Well, I think it serves it because Christ, of course, was betrayed by his own people in the sense of the Jews. Mm-hmm. And so Xavier there is being betrayed by the mutants. And so I think it's supposed to help turn him on Stryker's side that, you know, these mutants are terrible things, beings. And so you need to be against them. But the symbolism there, I mean, there's a break because, of course, I mean, it was Christ's decision to be up there. And he recognized that the people that were going to betray him were, number one, going to betray him. And number two, he was dying for them. And so I think that's like a it's, you know, obviously it's the savior complex there. And, and I think that would fit Charles's purpose more so than Stryker because he would willingly die if he could save all of uh, mutant kind and he does it for Christ does it for love and all of this stuff is like backed up by hate with Stryker so it's just it's uh, it's a really weird and uncomfortable fit it is it also um, if you're going for the 
this whole the Jews killed Christ narrative is one of the basic tenets of the, of anti-Semitism. You know, it's it's at the root of a lot of it over the course of the millennia. So the idea that Schreicher would go for that analogy makes sense because he's twisting he's twisting this religion, not Judaism but Christianity, to his own means, to his own ends, which are you know as we've already discussed a little bit. Um, so harping on that symbolism and, and using it to his advantage, and then he comes down like he comes down as Christ, which like <laughs> nice ego there, buddy. Um, yeah. But like, I mean, so but then he offers this hand, right? And then we see it again, like when we see it again at the end with um, Magneto. And Charles offering it to Magneto, and and you know basically this idea like you know that they they eventually part ways because they have to be that Magneto and Charles Xavier are always going to be on the opposite end of this this argument, even if they sometimes come together and agree. But as Xavier is kind of going through this, he does tell his story. Stryker tells his story, and we already talked about this this horrific story you were explaining to your former student. Oh boy. Um, to me, it's a logical progression of how he got from point A to point B to point C in terms of his life and career and his motivation. You know, I'm not saying it's right, but when he talks about his motivation for doing it, I can see the logical progression of events that led him to that point and how he rationalizes it and how he justifies his horrific actions based on that. Um, Am I wrong here? Do you think it, um, you know, if you think, if people knew a striker's past, do you think they'd follow him? I mean, is, is, is he just basically one big old hypocrite or, or what? Well, no, because they were both, it was mutant related. So I guess it follows his message. I just don't know how anyone would like find out about their pa- that past and follow him mm-hmm. but i guess they'd be like that was the greatest sacrifice he could have made he killed his child and his wife uh, <laughs> so you think it logically follows and his whole thing was that he felt it was a sign yeah. right so like in in striker's mind i can see how in striker's mind like that's the motivation like the, yeah. his internal logic, I think is what I was talking about. Like internally, logically, it makes sense to him, and I can see where he would draw those conclusions and go from A to B to C. Mm. Do you ever think that maybe it was the radiation and it wasn't actually a mutant? That child? was my guess. That that the that the the radiation from the atom bomb test basically um, created birth defects in the child, and but. Back then, the word mutant was there. So he said later on, yeah. I read this paper by, or I heard about Charles Xavier, and I read this whole thing about mutants. Finally, I had a name for it. So he's making that leap, and that's why I think the internal logic works, because he's so desperate for some sort of, because he's like crawled into the bottle at that point, and he's so yeah. desperate for something to grasp onto and he finds something to hate and hate is a very powerful motivator yeah yeah I think in his mind yeah it absolutely works it's pulling away from the comic bit I'm, I'm, I'm trying to there's like several questions that, that you had put in there and they're about 
we've kind of touched on them here and there. Um, we did mention that Claremont's clearly calling upon the televangelists of the day. Your Pat Robertson, Pat Robertson, I think is still alive. Um, Jerry Falwell Sr. Um, Jr. is still alive. And then Billy Graham, uh, who was still, I think he, Billy Graham, the, the, I died like last year, Jim Baker, um, and Tammy Faye, of course, may she rest in peace. Um, and, uh, and all those types, Jimmy Swaggart, he's drawing on them, but we still have this, um, we still have this tendency, whether it be religious leaders or supposed religious leaders, whether they be mainstream televangelists or wacko Jim Jones cult types, uh, David Koresh types, you know, those types of people, or even politicians, you know, the sort of demagogue type of, of person as somebody who is, and so I'm going to put you on the spot as somebody who is very, very um, devout in her practice of Christianity. Like how do you avoid falling into that trap of seeing somebody like a William Stryker or some of the real world examples I have and start thinking like, you know, as somebody who has devoted her whole life to like, you know, or a significant portion of her life to following the word of, of, of God and, and, and discussing it and, and studying it and, and, and et cetera. How do, how do you stay on a path that does not veer off into this? Like, you know, um, you know, racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, transphobic, mutant phobic, like that, that type of, that type of, 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 you know what I mean? Like, how do you, I, yeah, how do you oh, stay, sure. how do you stay um, <laughs> tolerant, you know, or, or not fall into the trap of the false prophet? Oh yeah. I, you know, it's number one. I feel like I'm on darkness to light here we've we've turned into a religious have podcast which is certainly yet? it's fine have they covered, covered god thing. loves many yeah, kills I don't, I don't know actually get on the yeah, ball this is red yeah <laughs> maybe we thwarted them once again because we did it with or we almost did it right they were f- feared that we were going to do it with Watchmen. Well, they did Watchmen. we don't have to do Watchmen. <laughs> that is and, correct so and now Middleton did, did Watchmen for everybody and alan was there so <laughs> yeah alan was there yeah so when you're listening to these people you can't just listen to them you actually have to and i think this is true for anything right if someone's talking to you you need evidence mm-hmm. and they need to back up what they're saying and so if they're throwing out bible quotes then you need to actually be looking up those bible quotes and seeing what the actual context is and so i mean it's very similar to Jesus's temptation in the desert because the devil was there and he's giving all of these quotations from different points in Old Testament to Jesus. And then Jesus is using more quotations to fight back. And so you just need to really know. I mean, that's step one is like really knowing your Bible. I don't thoroughly, thoroughly know. Like people can quote things and my head is just so full of different apples that any more apples would just drop out other apples. So, uh, you know, it's just constant reading is one thing. Number two is if there's any message that in that does not involve loving the other person, there's a major problem because that's step one for me. And that is like what I feel the whole Christian message is about is that, well, number one, of course, that we have uh, a God that loved us so much that in fact, he sent 
his own son and himself uh, to die for us and to save us. But number two, I mean, that love is right there, right? God equals love. And Jesus, he may have been angry at some people and telling them not to do things, overthrowing tables, things like that. But he loved everyone. He loved the sinner. So it's about loving the people. So, however, I might not agree with maybe your lifestyle, but I'm also not going to turn my back on you and despise you. I'm going to love you and maybe speak to you and be like, maybe this isn't the best lifestyle for you. But yeah, so I think if there's any like hate messaging going on, there's a clear issue. And I feel like though that's too easy. Mm-hmm. It might be, but that's for me because like you said, you know, I'm you know, trying to follow this path. And I'm not perfect people, so don't think that this is coming from someone who's like not sinning at all. But for me, that's the easy way to discern. But for people who might not be going to church and understand, then I, I think it might be easy to fall into this that sort of path. I think, um, you know, a false prophet is going to be really suave and tricky and really intelligent. And so that's when I think for the people who are more discerning, you're really going to have to to work at it, which is scary because I just feel like sometimes I go into these Bible studies and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I feel like there's going to be a test <laughs> and I'm going to fail and so if i've got you know my bible with me i think it'll be okay but um yeah for me number one is is love and and that's certainly how i try to live my life is just loving people despite you know there might be differences or they might be doing something that i don't necessarily agree with i mean there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to love them so that's my thinking on that Uh, yeah and and I, i like i said i'm I am so non-practicing. The last time I stepped into a church was, I think, a wedding. It was a wedding, not a funeral. Um, but um, so it was my cousin's wedding, and that was a Catholic church. So, but but at the same time, like, there's this. I think that, um, and this is just my interpretation too, or my my feelings and things that like. Sometimes I think we need to, people need to remind themselves they are allowed to question the authority of the human who is preaching at them. So, like, you know, these people who are twisting scripture to their own means, you know, they're the ones with the pulpit, right? So they're the ones up there. And and I think, like, when you're when you're brought up in a way that that person is the, you know, the the head of the the church, so sure. to speak, the you yep. are told you are either even if it's not directly, you are essentially it's implied that you don't question that authority. When I think that's a wrong message to send, because if you are somebody who is studying and then you're going to church and you're like, wait a second, what I'm seeing in this and what I'm hearing from this word from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whatever is in contradiction from you getting up there and telling me that all the mutants must die <laughs> or all the homosexuals sure. must die and this and that. Yep. You as the person should have, because A, you have free will, you should have the ability to, qu- and, and should not feel guilty for questioning that authority because that person mm-hmm. is not God. I mean, yeah, he's he or she has gone to seminary, et cetera, and studied, but at the same time, you know, Christianity is not evangelical baptism, Baptist, you know, it's not just even, you know, it's Catholicism. It's it's all these different 
denominations and things, and and they're like I, I know people who have gone from different denominations because they kept getting these messages. Like the pastor who married me was Lutheran, but he was raised Methodist, and he talked about he was because we, we had to go to a couple of you know Catholicism. You have to go to pre cana um, which is like classes and stuff like this. This was we Amanda and I had to just sit there and a couple of uh, one on ones were him with him or just kind of like you know hour sessions with him and like you know prior to getting married and um he talked about how like you know when you're with the methodist church he grew up in it was like you know you you there was a straight path to walk and if you deviated by an inch in either way you were going to hell and he was like i grew up in that and i'm like i began to question that but i still was very deep in my faith and i found the thing so like yeah so so my point was like you know you have to you have to remember that you're allowed to challenge authority, especially human authority for talking about, you know, the divine versus the human. And, mm. and I, uh, sometimes I think that gets, especially like when you have like massive organizations like the Catholic church or like these other like huge organizations that are like, you know, it's almost like going against the government, you know, even though the government, I'm a firm believer in separation of church and state, but there is that power dynamic. And, um, and when the power dynamic gets upset people don't don't necessarily like that so mm. my father was also a, <laughs> a a victim of a power dynamic and that's because that's the reason he writes with his right hand yet he's left-handed okay he went to catholic school in the 50s okay. your left hand is that is the evil hand <laughs> nuns oh, rulers sure. slap yeah so but bringing it back here so like because we just we just got this 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 allegory does the allegory hold up i mean can you apply it to today it's for this is almost 40 years old does the allegory hold up 40 years later or is this is this out of date Absolutely. Unfortunately, we're still plagued with hate. We're still plagued with uh, violence and shootings and racial issues. And, you know, here we are in the midst of Pride yeah. Month, though. This episode won't be released then. And, you know, I, I think back a couple years ago when that I think that gay club was uh, po- shot yeah, at in Florida club in Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. And so is it affiliated? Wait, isn't the one here in Charlottesville called Pulse? I didn't. And there's one in Waynesboro, I so it's actually it is a know. a chain. I don't know if it was. A it's chain. a chain club. I didn't know there was a. I didn't know that clubs had I chains. D- I did not know that there was a, another gay club in Charlottesville because Escafe had closed down. And it's then there was um, across from Bodo's on Emmett, and it's by the like kind of uh, Mexican oh, behind like Bodega and the Cavalier Inn. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. On um, it's like upstairs. By, by two- I saw it, and then I was in Waynesboro one day, and I thought, wait, there's a pulse oh, okay. right there. I didn't on. know that. Huh. Yeah, yep, yep. But anyways, as long as all of that stuff exists, this is absolutely going to be a poignant story. And also the rationalization of people who are bystanders away of 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 the like people would see what happened and like well they just and, and decide that the victims decide deserved it somehow in some like this twisted pretzel logic the people who don't want to get involved with it we see it on we see it on facebook all the time especially when it comes to um incidents where uh police officers are gunning down mm-hmm. african-americans you know that 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 there's that narrative that people that because they want to be justified in their own feelings about this, especially their own racism, they they come up with a way to justify that, you know, 
that this person should have been gunned down in the middle of the street and you're just like no but but so like I could see, <laughs> but I could see that happening here with Stryker you yeah. know the idea like you were you were saying like he pushes Anne who is his essentially his like head enforcer off of the podium at the garden and you you were just you were like people were like well she had it coming to her she was a mutant and that sort of that line of reasoning is very well alive today as well Mm -hmm. um so let's get back into the comic a little bit um uh and i only have a couple more questions two more actually first why does magneto call uh the victory against striker a and i always mispronounce it Pyrrhic. uh Pyrrhic. Pyrrhic victory so yep. Pyrrhic victory um is one that is offset by staggering losses so what do the mutants lose and what do they gain that's interesting i think what they gain is victory over striker mm-hmm. but they've still Hmm. Yeah, what they've lost is harder, right? I, they, I guess, the fact that they had to endure this, nonetheless, you know, that they they were once again called uh, into a fight. <laughs> um, but it's fun, yeah, with Magneto saying that. That's interesting. Ah, uh, I'm not sure because nobody was killed. I know that they were seriously injured, but I guess I think. Okay, this is where I'm going. Stryker, I think, is the victory. They were victory, but there's still, I think he was able to, he was so charismatic that he was able to perhaps build up hate where maybe there wasn't any or awareness for the mutants where there wasn't any. So maybe if there were people that were more apathetic or like just didn't know, now they would swing either way and maybe be on the side of Stryker rather than not. So I think it woke something in uh the wider audience that may be not was there before so that was the loss so now there might be more people against the mutants even though the figurehead is gone yeah I, I'm, I'm gonna agree with you it did not stop people from hating mutants maybe it convinced a couple of people but the um the movement itself is there mm-hmm. you know so so it really you know you, you took down yeah you cut off the head but the you know, <laughs> some something else is going to take his place. And yeah, mutant, it, it didn't. It did not stop racism, basically, mm-hmm. so to speak. And even Professor X is like, you know, I kind of agree with you. And um, Cyclops, to his credit, is the one that turns around and is like, look, you know. Don't let what happened destroy what you've built you know he's like you know you are a man of principles those are the principles i believe in don't do this you know it, it, even if it's really really hard stand stand up for what you stand up for what you believe in um and uh magneto is like well you know what do you charles do you subscribe to your students insanity or will you join me and charles is like i can't would you have taken Magneto's hand there? <laughs> oh boy, that's the thing, isn't it? I think still no. I think you know if I were to, while I find Malcolm X an intriguing personality, 
I think that I'm more on the side of John Lewis and his peaceful resist, which I'll assign as, you know, Martin Luther King. So I think I would still go alongside, yeah, the more peaceful and trying to live alongside them. I'm a generally nonviolent person anyway. <laughs> generally, oh. except those times that I've made you angry. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, so I'm not, I'm not one who believes in violence. So I, I would not take Magneto's cause. I don't have enough solid knowledge of Malcolm X. I really need to read the autobiography of Malcolm X because, so I, I have very little knowledge beyond what I learned in history, and, and it tends to be skewed toward, you know, this man was violent. Um. And, and sometimes painting him as like, oh, this is the wrong way to go about the civil rights movement when, you know, I think that's, that is up for debate. But mm-hmm. um, I think the problem with Magneto is that he's been a supervillain as well. And that's where, like, you know, that's where this falls apart a little bit if you're keeping this in the continuity of everything else. X-Men, if this is a standalone thing and, and, and Magnus is standing for a more by any means necessary type of of anti-mutant racism cause, um, I think it, it does work. Uh, but that's me nitpicking like characterization and stuff. I guess it'd be speciesism. Yeah. So, because like he's, because he's like literally a, a like not a war criminal, but like he's up there with like the things he's tried <laughs> to pull. So, oh sure, yep. Especially if you go back and like read the Lee Kirby stuff and the Roy Thomas stuff, which is hard to get through at times. Like he's he's a mustache twirling villain. I mean, it's there's no, it's Claremont, I think, or at least from what I can tell here, who adds some of that subtlety and some of the nuance to his character that I didn't see when I was reading the really early X-Men stuff. So, mm. But no, I, I probably would side with Charles, as frustrating as it could be. Um, it's, yeah. So um, I think we've covered it. Um, you've taught this before. Um, I did teach yeah, this, yeah. I would. I would teach this. I would recommend it. Um, how did it go when you were teaching it? Let's just kind of turn the question around a little bit. Yeah, I think... Trying to remember. That was a year that it was a pass or fail course, mm-hmm. so the chances of them actually reading it were slim. Oh, I'm sorry. The Good students God. Yeah, I know. The slim, the students who enjoyed comics and signed up for the course for that and not because it was gonna be an easy course, I suppose. They that was that was where it was. I think it went well. I think it, it sparked some good discussions and I think it also opened their eyes because other things I was doing were like Hush and I think Marvel Knight Spider-Man and stuff. So I think it opened their eyes that comics can actually be, I, you know, comics I think sometimes get a bad, bad name as, you know, it's just a superficial kind of fun mm. escapism and that there are actually deep story lines and uh, really great storytelling that can be done but they're just in comic format. Okay, cool. I've used a few comics in my class, um, and I, I think I got that across to some of the kids, but not all. Again, I had that problem, too. Not everybody reads what I put in front of them. So. Sad. Okay, so now we do have feedback. Um, our first 
email. We have two emails. The first one is from our Scholastic Book buddy, Robert Ward. So, Stella, why don't you go ahead and read that? Anything that comes from Robert should be called hate mail. Okay. Dear Tom and Stella, I was torn whether or not I should email you. To be completely frank, I didn't like the Hunger Games at all. I don't like being so negative to your coverage and analysis, but the Hunger Games threw me for a loop as I really didn't like this book or your thoughts. Oh, man. I'm tempted to even make a joke about required reading participating in a little payola with the YA book market. I even joked with Joe Crawford that he was now my nemesis, apparently, too. (laughs) Oh, man. As he also liked the Hunger Games, and I can't understand why. Wow, we're just breeding conflict. You know what this means, Tom? We're going to have to have a YA discussion. I guess so. Probably for episode 40. I have never had the desire to read The Hunger Games before, but took up listening to the audiobook to follow along with the show, but also primarily because I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to get what I really have been wanting to read, Battle Royale by Koshun Takami. Battle Royale has been on my list to read for some time, and I couldn't pass up the chance to compare, as the two often are. The fact that Battle Royale wasn't even mentioned uh-oh, can be seen as respectful to Suzanne Collins' work but also detrimental as Battle Royale truly is a superior version of the story I disliked I'm, the I'm Hunger Games I'm going to butt in here really quickly I believe I there is a movie version of Battle Royale that I've heard of but until Robert brought it up I it had like gone completely from my mind. So the omission of battle Royale was at least on my part had nothing to do with being respectful to Suzanne Collins and everything to do with the fact that I forgot it existed. I didn't even know it existed. So it was ignorance more than respect. Yeah. I disliked the hunger games almost immediately. I don't know if it's just how Collins writes, but like many books of this type, I really struggled. As the story progressed, I pretty much had a problem with everything and everyone. Before your, before your episode was released, I honestly looked up thoughts on its characterization because I'm in the minority and thought Katniss Everdeen was a terrible character. My mind boggles at the thought that Katniss could be considered a complex character whatsoever. It's not just her either. I disliked every character and thought Collins was terrible at fleshing out this story. Since I didn't like Katniss, it should be no surprise that I also didn't care for the use of first-person perspective. I may have yelled at Tom through my phone when he stated he liked it and thought it was effective. By the end of your episode, I was like, <laughs> I can't believe you survived an hour and a half or two hours. You should have just stopped, stopped the pain. What he thinks of he was, I was left completely exasperated. What would you say? I what he thinks of that fair. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that poor man. Maybe this isn't your fault, however, and you simply never brought up Battle Royale or how the premise can be so much more because neither of you have read or seen the film adaptation. There you go, Tom. Have you, question mark? We just answered that. With all due respect, if this is the case, I recommend you do. I can put on my good reads now. And I think the film's on Netflix. The flicks that are Netflix. I've seen it. I've I've seen it scrolling through in the past. If it's still – if it was – but that was in the past. I don't know if it's still there or not, but I believe it. Okay. 
Battle Royale has more pathos and is much more successful with giving the readers a look at the human condition. The use of third-person perspective is infinitely better than Hunger Games' first person because how we are given a look at all the different characters and their journeys. In the Hunger Games, I felt the opera- I feel like he's yelling every time he capitalizes the Hunger Games, but I know that's not, not his attention. Dad. Uh, in the Hunger Games, the, I felt the opportunity to truly explore characters was treated too cheaply. I appreciated being given multiple characters and their backgrounds in Battle Royale. It's more sympathetic and terrifying. I'm nobody to suggest books to either of you. Oh, please. Go I always ahead. take yeah. suggestions. Yeah. But this is now the second. What was the first? Battle this Royale is now the second. The no, I don't think no. so. It, maybe it was... Um, my lesbian experience because he said this is now the second okay, which yes. is battle royale if you ever have the time please please read the following by kushun takami and the sequel and the sequels by over oh something might not have copied over well i think yeah so his other recommendation which i guess would be the third is my lesbian yes. experience with romance and then the sequels by kabi nagata which i have read my lesbian experience with Rome, uh, sorry, with loneliness. I did read that, and I did see on Comixology that the sequels have come out. Okay. So here, let's see. My lesbian experience, I'm happy to report, has been suggested to another podcaster who, thankfully, did enjoy the manga and the author's attempt to analyze all of her problems. Over the span of the books, Kabi Nagata takes a hard look at her sexuality, but more importantly and more prominently, her history with eating disorders, alcoholism, depression, her family's dynamic, and employment struggles. The podcaster not only read the first book, but she also went out and actually bought my solo exchange diary, one and two, in short order. At the time of her last episode, she hadn't read them yet, but I have high hopes that she will love them as much as I do. I don't want to continue on being negative and criticize your book coverage, so I'll just leave it here. I wasn't expecting yet another big book, but I found a copy on LibreVox, which is interesting. If The name is interesting. And if I plan on listening to Vanity Fair and read the Gilda stories by Jewel Gomez for podcast in June, I better get on it. Your classic book buddy, Robert. P.S. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't scroll. P.S. Tom, if it adds any bonus points, the novel of Battle Royale, he's screaming again, includes a great passage and admiration regarding the boss and the song Born to Run. What's not slightly better with some Springsteen love? No, I, maybe I will. Um, maybe I will pick that up. Like I said, I'm pretty sure I've, I've seen the at least seen the movie while scrolling through Netflix uh, to find something to watch. So I might, at the very least, I'll start with the movie. Maybe I'll go hunt down a copy of the book um, and, and check it out if I can. But no, thank you, Robert. And no no, apo- no apology necessary for criticizing our coverage of anything. I mean, that's what we like about doing this. We're not, neither of us is perfect. God knows I'm not. Absolutely. So, no, but we appreciate your th- thought on The Hunger Games. It was... Um, I will say that Katniss, as the novels went on, there were things she does that I really liked, but there are a, there's a lot of time where I she irritates me. Because I think she spends way too much time whining about how she doesn't want to be a hero. And eventually she comes around to it, but it's just like... It's, it's just... So I can see where you're coming from on on that and and stuff. So, 
but um and but I do like I like catching fire a lot and um but I'm glad that like by the time we get around to mocking Jay, she's not doing another Hunger Games thing where she's not essentially relying on the gimmick of her dystopian future. She's going for something a little bit broader in terms of the uh, the actual story. So. You have anything else before I get into Professor Allen's email? No, I don't. I well, you know, I. It's always interesting to have someone mm-hmm. <laughs> be really. Um, yeah, I like that he's engaged, and you know, people are going to like or not like what they you know like and not like. And uh-huh. I was texting people today and said my opinions are often counter to to uh to others like i like suicide squad and man of steel and so i think that you have every right to not like the hunger games and i hope that but also sir you have the freedom to not listen (laughs) to the podcast if it's like gonna make you upset because i also care for your well-being so let's hope we get back to comic i was about to say comics to books that you enjoy and our our friend michael bailey is fond of saying the phrase uh you can't argue taste and i believe that's a really good way to look at it as well so um we have an email about episode 30 which is the pop culture special uh from professor allen he says stella and fella Really enjoyed the discussion of pop culture books in episode 30. There is a subgenre that Stella briefly touched on that I wanted to give more time to. That is the episode guide. When I was catching up and or binging X-Files and Babylon 5, the season-by-season unofficial episode guides for these shows came in very handy, and they were also good sources of behind-the-scenes gossip and fan theories. I found these at the local public library, along with similar books later for 24 and Battlestar. I prefer the unofficial ones to the official ones. By the way, again, more behind-the-scenes drama is revealed. And I will add, um, way back in the day, I had the Star Trek Compendium, which was a episode-by-episode guide of the original series that also stretched into the that what was then five movies. Um, it was really, really cool. And then I have um, two books by Tomorrow's, uh, publishing the Titans Companion, book one and book two, which are all about the Teen Titans starting with their origins in the 1960s and moving up to what was then the early, I think, right up to Infinite Crisis or right after Infinite Crisis. Um, and those are cool because they have like really, really good interviews with, with creators and stuff, not necessarily an issue-by-issue guide or an index, but uh, I, I did want to mention those. So thank you. Uh, he says, great show, keep up the good work. And, of course, you can find Professor Allen over at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network with the Quarterbin Podcast Short Box Showcase and over at Dorkness to Light. Oh, my gosh. Did he do that on purpose so you'd have to, like, pimp out all of his shows? No, he just put Relatively Geeky Podcast Network and Dorkness to Light. I added the other shows because... Are you getting paid for that promotion? Like, a quarter goes a really long way these days. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Paid, well, the way paid he in crappy '90s comics that he that he got from the Quarterman. <laughs> he sends them every once in a while. I believe you have some for me. Maybe that's the payment. For I this do actually, promotion. yes, in a Manila envelope, uh, waiting to get to uh, you. <laughs> All right, so that that is it. Um, so please uh, go on to. Uh, iTunes leave us reviews feel free to email us in uh, 
go to Twitter, Facebook, etc. We appreciate any and all feedback. Uh, don't forget our Twitter handle is RecReadingCast. And uh, we've been trying to post reviews to the website when I remember to do it of, of just random books just to get some stuff on there. And I, I tend to cross-post to one of my other blogs for it because I've been doing a lot of reviews of the uncollecting. But um, that'll do it for episode 32. We have another episode coming up in about a month, and Stella has the pick for that. So we're going to finish up with the question we finish every episode with, and that is, Stella, what are we reading for next month? An uplifting novel of short proportion to like basically a fourth of Vanity Fair. Wait, let me think if that's correct. Mm, yeah, about a fourth of Vanity Fair. It's The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Yeah. So we will be back with that in about a month. And until then, thank you very much for listening and take care. Being a beauty lover is okay with me. Okay with me too. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two truths. That's two truths. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreadingwithtomandstella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.